0: So, Matt, I'm having a hard time introducing you about, you know, because you've got your military background, you've got Army, you've got Marines, you've got military intelligence and maybe some um, intelligence contractor background. Would you just describe to us, especially to give us a background, because I want to ask you a few things about that may involve the intelligence community.
1: So I'll start from the top. So. I uh, graduated from the University of St. Thomas in Houston in May 2003 with a degree in history, specializing in Western civilization, military history, Roman Empire, Civil War, all that stuff. And I went to the Marine Corps for four years as an anti-tank assault man. I got out. Um, I was working as a doorman at a couple of topless strip clubs in Houston for a little while. And my boss was actually a former organized crime boss who was living under federal witness protection in Houston at the time. I can look it up on Google, former mob boss hiding in Houston, can't make that stuff up. And so I tried <laughs> to back in the Marine Corps after doing that for a little while. Uh, they weren't interested really in helping me get back in because I didn't count for their numbers. So I went to the Army and they said, hey. I would you like to do military intelligence, get a top secret security clearance, all that stuff? I said, hey, great. Where do I sign? And so within a few weeks, I was at Fort Huachuca as the MOS T, what they call an MOS transfer. So we were in a separate class grouping from the guys who were just coming into the Army or the military the first time. I uh, went to there, uh, trained as an interrogator and a human intelligence collector. When I graduated there, I went straight to Fort Wainwright. A few weeks later, I went straight to Iraq where the uh, 125 Strike Brigade was already deployed. I was assigned to the 184th Military Intelligence Company. I interrogated some uh, HBIs, high-value individuals we had. Uh, some were pretty senior insurgent leaders. Then came back stateside with the unit, went to uh joint source validation course, graduated the source operations course where they teach you Basic trade crafting—they call category two source handling or category two military source operations. Then deployed to Afghanistan in 2011. I was a non-commissioned officer in charge of the 125 Striker Brigade's S2X Human Intelligence Shop, and got out. Of, I came back from that deployment, got out of the Army in 2012. Went to work as an intelligence contractor um, from the end of 2013 through about the end of 2015. Uh, most of my time in Afghanistan was spent on a strategic intelligence collection platform whose existence was not widely known outside of certain intelligence circles. Your you know, operating authorities and guidelines were approved by policymakers and elected officials back in Washington, D.C., some of whom you might have seen on TV. And at the end of 2015, I left that platform And I went and I did six years in the Balkans region of Europe as a counterintelligence analyst, where my job was to prevent the Russian and Serbian intelligence services from penetrating our human intelligence source operations in the Balkans and places like Kosovo. And in addition to that, my job was to root out any double agents the Russians and the Serbs may have had place in our human intelligence source pool long story short got a few scalps on my belt and right around uh, early 2022 my position was cut and they said thank you for all your work mr Reed but positions are getting cut by US Army Europe have yourself a nice life so I came back home I'm um, uh, working on another book wrote another book that uh, took some time and some effort and promoted some other ones that I've written and other than that, been making up for lost time with my father culling the wild hog population.
0: Oh, okay, okay. That is an incredible introduction. There's a lot to pull out there. So, let's start with just what's what's most recent right now as we record sure. this. I don't know how much you can say or how much you know, but you probably know more than I do. This whole this whole Chinese these these, these surveillance balloons. You know, as far as I know, we shot down one that that went across the whole continental United States. Shot it down in the Atlantic. There's been at least
1: four more. I mean, what do you think about this, and what is it? Well, there's a number of possibilities and explanations for what happened. For one thing, for the Chinese to pull something like that uh, is not the smartest thing they could do. Uh, let me let me explain why. So. China may, they are in some ways a long-term threat, and I don't want to try to play that down too much, but they have very serious vulnerabilities that most people are simply not aware of. Okay, for one, while they have a huge Navy, the vast majority of their ships, and this has been articulated by analysts like Peter Zihon and possibly George Friedman, most of their naval vessels are diesel-powered. They're not nuclear-powered like ours. So they can't really sail all that far, right? like no more than maybe a 1,000 miles or so. That's assuming we're not trying to sink them. China gets uh, the vast majority of its oil and gas from Middle Eastern oil and gas coming out of the Persian Gulf from the Strait of Hormuz. They are by far the country that is the most dependent on Middle Eastern oil and gas right now and have been for a number of years. So it is about over 5,000 miles from the Persian Gulf to Beijing and Shanghai. Most of their Navy vessels can't sail anywhere near far enough to get close to the Persian Gulf. Now, whose Navy has kept those sea lanes open for decades? Ours. If we wanted to, we could blockade and sink every single Chinese flagged oil and gas thing are coming out of the Strait of Hormuz. And frankly, there's not a damn thing China can do about it, at least in that in that region. And the vast majority of What China depends on for its lifeblood is mass import of raw materials, mass export of all the cheap junk they make. Basically, importing oil and gas and iron ore. And then, of course, a lot of exporting. Most of what they import and export goes through a place called the Straits of Malacca. And it's in the South China Sea in Southeast Asia. And if you look at it, the Straits of Malacca are like a series of island archipelagos, small islands. If you if you take the water of the Pacific away, it's nothing but ambush and choke points all the way. Mm-hmm. If we were to blockade the Straits of Malacca, which oh yes we can do, and blockade their oil and gas coming out of the Persian Gulf, we'd have them in a chokehold and they'd be in deep shit. And there's Chinese have shown indicators that they know this. And so if they got half a brain, they got to know that poking the United States as we've moved towards a more populist direction and as we've gotten more confrontational with them, doesn't seem like a smart thing to do. So either some Chinese government official made a decision and did something really stupid or there were some things they wanted to surveil that they thought was important enough to take that risk. Now, I understand reports were saying that these balloons flew over the missile silos in the Dakotas. I'm not sure how much intelligence they could have collected off of that because it's mostly underground. It's no secret that those missile silos are there. What they thought they were going to get, they couldn't get through other means. I'm honestly not sure. Now, as far as why we didn't shoot it down, there could be a number of explanations. We could have had some senior flag officers that either weren't allowed or didn't want to make the decision to shoot it down. Or it could be that this thing... May have had some kind of signals intelligence package on it. We were tracking, we wanted a chance to monitor to see where the communications were going. That's a possibility, but I'm not sure. And then, of course, it goes over the Atlantic and we shot it down. And there could have been something on there that was dangerous if they decided to wait till it got over the Atlantic. That's another possibility. But based on all the news reports, I just, I'm not sure. Now, the other unidentified objects they've shot down there seemed to be conflicting reports. Uh, one pilot, according to one news report I did see, uh, the first missile they fired at it was an AIM-9X and the first one apparently missed, which is really odd because those are pretty good missiles. I've never heard of one missing a target. And then one pilot, according to one news report, said it was either jamming or spoofing their radars. Now, I didn't go into much more detail. If, if I was still in the intelligence community, I would have to sit down with the pile and do what we call a debriefing and say, okay, you know, Captain, Colonel, Lieutenant, so-and-so, you say it did this to your radar. How did it do it? How do you know it was doing that? So on and so forth. And, of course, that report would probably get a top secret so classification slapped on before it was published out. When, when I go back to work in the intelligence community in the next few months, I'm sure I'll, I'll be able to see some of the stuff that's classified. What it could be... Um, I'm not 100% sure.
0: Yeah, it's just pretty bizarre. And I, I haven't jumped to many conclusions, but <clears throat> I mean, I've always thought that, not always, but I mean, the last few years, I've thought that China is not as intimidated by the United States as maybe they have been in, in times past. So what do you think
1: though, Matt? Well, if they're not, then they're not thinking straight because they're, their primary industrial inputs they need to survive and keep the lights on the security of that flow of oil and gas has always depended on the. US Navy we could we, we could have cut it off anytime we wanted to. Uh, the reason that we protected their oil and gas shipments going back to the 1970s was to bring them on our side versus Russia and the Soviet Union under Nixon it was a pretty smart decision but I mean it worked pretty good so They have a lot of vulnerabilities, and they're actually more vulnerable than they were in the past, because over the last few years, a whole lot of Western and American firms have been, quite frankly, hauling ass out of China starting around 2014, 2015, because what a lot of American companies found out, and this just goes to show you, you don't have to be a genius to be a corporate executive or a shareholder, is they do not have an independent court system at all, right? Right. If someone absconds with your money or steals it, if you're an executive or an investor or whatever in the US, Canada, Japan, or Europe, there's an independent court system. You do have recourse to get it back, right? That's not the case in China. So around 2014, a lot of executives started realizing, hey, why are all of our bank accounts drained? And Chinese Communist Party bosses in different regions We're just cleaning out their bank accounts. And we say, you can't do that. We'll sue you. And they're like, where? There is no court system. There is us, the party bosses, and the Politburo, Bubba, and that's it. So a whole lot of Western companies all of a sudden are just basically being robbed blind by the Chinese. They come complaining to Uncle Sam. And we say, well, you didn't tell you you had to move your stuff over there, moron. You did it on your own because you didn't want to deal with the unions, Mm -hmm. and then these Communist Party bosses are robbing you blind. That's your choice, your problem, Bubba. So that starts to happen, and these executives realize, for example, the ones that were stupid enough to stay there through COVID, like Apple, they try to get their factories back up running, and the Party bosses just keep locking everything down again. They're like, dude, we're losing too much money. The investors are pulling their money. The shareholders are going nuts against the CEO saying, look, you said these factories would be up and working again. That was a year ago. And the companies that moved back to North America or to Mexico or Vietnam or Thailand were able to run and do good. The Western companies that are still in China are realizing they are extremely overexposed. And if the Chinese want to rob them blind, There's literally not a damn thing they can do. So a lot of that's moved away from China. That political pull they might have had is really not there anymore, at least as far as through the private sector. And the fact is, if we wanted to, we could sink all their oil and gas tankers coming out of the Persian Gulf, and most of their ships can't even get far enough to stop us. And that's assuming we don't blockade them. Look at China geographically. They're surrounded by enemies and American allies Taiwan, Japan, Australia, Philippines, Indonesia, Thailand, Vietnam, and India. They all see China as an existential threat. If we got together with all of our allies, India included, we could sever the Straits of Malacca, blockade China. The only way they could get out of it would be to fight their way through Taiwan, Japan, South Korea, Australia, Philippines, Thailand, Vietnam, Burma. And then they still have to get through the Indian Navy just to get what they can for the blockade we'd have in the Persian Gulf. And some of their intelligence analysts have to know this, but see, here's the problem. And a geopolitical analyst Peter Zaihan summed this up pretty well, I think. The Chinese have always had a weird culture of what he describes as shooting the messenger. And it's a very totalitarian system, right? I mean, the, the heads of the Politburo execute government officials all the time whenever they feel like. And that's just what they do. There's no law. There's there's really no rule of law outside of what they decide they want. So nobody, if you're an intel analyst in China, you don't necessarily want to bring bad news to the party bosses because you might get shot or stuck in a concentration camp. Mm -hmm. So if they know this, they just keep their mouth shut. and They tend to kind of they have a culture of telling the guy at the top only what he wants to hear. And so maybe the guys at the top don't realize just how much damage the U.S. and all of our allies in Asia could do all at once if we wanted to. That might be why they're doing some of the dumb things. Also, the fact is they have a massive population that they have to keep in check. You know, having almost two billion people is not an asset, it's a liability. Um, Keep keep, keep in mind, 600 million people in China still live in sub-Saharan poverty. Doesn't sound like a very prosperous country when you really step back and look at it. It has the veneer of a first world country, but a number of years ago, vast swaths of China's population in their rural interior were, were resorting to cannibalism to survive. And so, not just those energy vulnerabilities, but they also have food supply vulnerabilities that are actually being exacerbated by the war in the Ukraine. They, they are actually not in very good shape. You want to know the hmm.
0: truth? Okay. Interesting take. And by the way, your top secret clearance, is it just kind of like
1: on um, on hold right now? More, more or less. It's just – it's it's good. It's there. It's just not – it's just not officially activated because I'm yeah. not you
0: like
1: They it can easily battery. do it.
0: They don't – They don't have to do a background check anymore. I can just kind of reactivate it once you're.
1: Well, I had my reinvestigation done about a year ago, and it was cleared and good to go. So for about the next five years, I'm good.
0: Okay. Well, let's talk about Ukraine the the global effects of the war in Ukraine. You know, Russian intelligence, what they're thinking, because you've definitely got some insight there from dealing with them in the Balkans region. So. What do you think? What do you, what do you want to say on that, with the effects and why they did it, and what's the outcome and whatever else, Matt?
1: Sure. There's there's a, there's a handful of reasons, core core reasons I would say why they're doing this. Uh, so I'm gonna do I'm gonna take a give you a military historian's take. I'm gonna gel that together with the analysis we did in U.S. Army Europe and what we in the intel community know. I'm gonna tie that together with again analysis done by Peter Zihan because his analysis on the global effects ties in perfectly. So I'm going to try to make it all make sense. So first, let's start with Russia's geography and history, right? I mean, they are freaking huge, massive borders. Russia's geography has always been both a blessing and a curse. It's not a total blessing like ours is. In peacetime, when they're trying to protect themselves, it's a curse because it's so huge. I'm talking thousands and thousands of miles, Siberia, you know, all that. But when someone invades Russia and sets foot on Russian soil, the paradigm goes 180 degrees the opposite. And geography starts to work against the invader because it's so massive, right? Just ask Napoleon, just ask the German Wehrmacht in World War II. So the Russians, for the last like 300 years or so, most of the existential threats and invasions that they face have come from Europe. They've come from the West, even though in their in much of their early history was from the South, China, the Mongols, the Huns, all that. So past three centuries, mostly invasions coming from the West and from Europe. Again, Swedes, Poles, Napoleon, the Germans, all that. And put it in perspective: in World War II, the Ger- or the, excuse me, in World War II, the Russians lost about twenty-seven million people fighting the German bear. Uh, They lost more civilians at the siege of Leningrad, to starvation and cannibalism, than the servicemen we lost in World War II. Just got to put that in perspective. So it certainly had an effect on their thinking. You know, how could it not? And so it's one of the reasons why after World War II, they moved all the way into Hungary, Czechoslovakia, and Eastern Europe. That was what they always wanted, to give them some strategic depth. Now, after the war, when we set up NATO there was sort of a gentleman's agreement between us, the British, and the Soviet men in the Kremlin. That was, we would keep Germany divided. We would never again let Germany get too powerful, again, economically or militarily. That was just sort of the, the under-the-table gentleman's agreement that we had, and both sides more or less abided by it. With the coming of the EU, and I was kind of stepping back from the world a little bit, Germany's kind of become the dominant economic power in Europe. Most of the Europeans don't like that. They have long memories. Well, selective long memories, I should say. And the Russians perhaps accurately see the EU as a German-controlled superstate, which if you follow the money flows, it kind of is. And in their minds, they cannot have a German-dominated superstate on their board. If it's just NATO, they can kind of live with that because the Russians see NATO for what it was. It's an American-funded American-made organization whose purpose was to keep the Russians out, the Americans in, and the Germans down. Hmm. Blunt way of looking at it, that's kind of what it was, kind of what it was made to do. So we go through the Cold War, the Soviet Union collapses, and the Russians have a 60% drop in birth rate like that. It gets noticed by the Rand Corporation, which we in the intelligence community use for a lot of things. And you had that massive drop in birth rate almost overnight. Medical system collapses, alcoholism epidemic. They have an HIV, opioid, and drug epidemic that is far worse than anything we have. Then in the 90s, one of Russia's primary exports were young, beautiful Russian and Belarusian women and girls, Okay. The Russian mafia takes them, millions of them scatter all over the globe, either as prostitutes or mail-order brides looking for a Western husband. Combine millions of those young women leaving with a 60% drop in birth rate, run this forward about 30 years, what does that do? So it gets us to a point now where unless something drastic changes in Russia proper, by the middle of this century the Russians will just about be died off as a people, or at least they'll just be nothing more than a Slavic old folks home where most of their population is over the age of 55 and 60. Now, if you're the Russians and you know this is happening and you're going to have far more old people than young, then the question becomes, how do you maintain and staff an army or a military to protect yourself? Well, that becomes kind of hard. And so in the Russian mindset, the only way they can protect themselves is to conquer and expand into Eastern Europe to close any gaps an invader might come. Mm-hmm. Right? They've been thinking that way since the time of like either Peter the Great or Catherine the Great for centuries. It's ingrained in their thinking. And they have, have they already raised the
0: the age, days. or have they forced? Do they have any drafts right now? Raise oh, yeah. the age to forty five or fifty?
1: Oh yeah, they they think it's a fifty year old. Okay, so they are at that point where they say, okay. If we're going to expand to survive, which in their mindset they have to, this is the last decade they have to do. So it was kind of one of those, you know, fish or cut bait, now or never kind of things. So they decided to make a go for the Ukraine. It's obviously not going that well for them. The Russians have always had a major Achilles heel in regards to logistics. When their entire logistics system is just on two railroad lines in some cases, it's not hard to cut a rail line. I mean, a hand grenade can just about do it and derail the train. The whole thing shuts down. So the Ukrainians did a, a remarkable job in some cases of hitting them where it really hurt and then using those javelins to wipe out their tanks. They actually did remarkably well in that regard. But So as this war expands in the Ukraine, what starts to happen? Ukraine's agriculture is being completely obliterated. Still got a ways to go, but it's, it's being burned down pretty good. And if you notice, the one place where the Russians have been kind of successful in focusing their resources is in knocking out and occupying Ukraine's import and export terminals on the Black Sea. They've blown the hell out of those things and occupied them pretty quick. So what does that do? And why are the Russians doing that, right? Ukraine is one of the world's primary bread baskets. okay? They're one of the biggest exporters of wheat, grain, and fertilizer products, all right? and the intel community, we used to kind of track this thing, but we didn't pay as much attention to it as we should. We're just now starting. So with Ukraine's import-export terminals being destroyed, shut down, agriculture burned down through the war, what happens? The countries that depend on that for their food vast swaths of the Middle East and vast swaths of Africa unless something changes the next couple of years they're looking at mass famine and starvation okay but what does that do Potential, potentially again if nothing changes collapses those countries into civil war what happens you get millions and millions and millions of Middle Eastern African migrants being plowed and forced straight into the heart of Europe as refugees, right? Now, aside from the obvious problems that creates, chaos, civil war, great strain on the financial and medical systems of France to Netherlands, Germany, Italy, Austria, you know, maybe even France and Spain. That fear of those migrants is something that we've seen before in 2014, 2015, when they were coming in through Turkey and the Balkans. What changed politically in Europe the last time this happened? Well, the right wing parties of Europe, the AFD in Germany, Italy, uh, Netherlands, the National Front in France, their power increases drastically for obvious reasons. People are scared. How do we pay for these people? How many of them might be terrorists? We don't know. Understandably, they're a little scared about that. I and mean, If you have these people coming in by the millions upon millions, What do they have to do? Well, they got to get serious about their security. Most likely, that'll lead, again, to strain on the financial system, chaos, maybe some insurgencies on European soil, which suit Russia's interests just fine because you're stirring up chaos in the rear of your enemy, which is obvious. just basic military strategy. It's really pretty simple. But if those countries are not destroyed by the flow of Refugees coming in by the millions. It'll be because the right-wing parties came to power and stopped it. And traditionally, the way right-wing parties in Europe stop something like that is by taking any unassimilated ethnic or religious minority and basically turn them into air pollution. Ethnic cleansing, which the Europeans have done many, many times throughout their history. So, well, obviously, you know, that. To creates some problems for us, but the most dangerous problem isn't immediately obvious. There are members of the right-wing parties in these European countries who are avowedly pro-Russian and pro-Putin. Not all. I want to paint with two broader brush here. There's plenty that are not, but there's plenty that are. So if those parties rise to power to, say, France and Germany, which Germany is NATO's primary logistics hub, That's a major counterintelligence nightmare for us. And so, even if the Russians don't necessarily win and take over Ukraine, if they can smash their agriculture and smash their import and export terminals beyond repair, they cause famine in the Middle East and Africa, wings of refugees come into Europe, the resulting chaos suits Russia's strategic military ends perfectly. And... Some people hearing me say this may think, well, what does Putin think about all this? And I say, doesn't matter as much as you think. The intelligence services of Russia have run that country since the czarist era. Okay, even with the exception of when Stalin was in charge, because he was pretty smart and ruthless. I mean, wow. So the the intelligence services run the show. And that's guys like uh, Alexander Bortnikov of the FSB, Nikolai Patrushev, these guys are the really the shot callers in the Russian deep state, and from what I can see, and from what I saw when I was an analyst in U.S. Army Europe, they know exactly what they're doing.
0: What's going to come of Ukraine itself five years from now? Is it just going to? Is it going to be a a famine situation there? Are they going to capture Zelensky soon? I mean, what do you think?
1: There's a lot of ways it could go none of which is really going to be good for anybody. It could be a massive black hole, a lost life for the Russians. You know, we can certainly continue to supply the Ukrainians and use them as a proxy to bleed the Russians, which is exactly what we're doing. Or the Ukrainians end up winning and they inherit a country in ruins they have to rebuild. Now, Long term, there is another major national security issue very few people are even talking about, but it keeps those of us in my line of work up late at night. When the Russians start to die off as a people, mid to late part of this century, where they can't staff a military or security services anymore, here's a million dollar question. What happens to the thousands upon thousands of nuclear weapons they have? They're going to be up for grabs. Yeah. That is a long-term problem that I can guarantee you is keeping many of my fellow analysts up late at night because we're probably not a hundred percent sure what we're going to do about
0: that. Yeah, good point, Matt. What about anything that you learned? You know, when you were over there in the Balkans region, or anything that maybe would surprise us? Can you tell us anything else about your time there that'd be interesting to the audience?
1: Sure. So. The Balkans, we haven't assigned in the United States that much priority to it, but the Russians have. Long story short, the Russians have vast, multi layered, what I would just call redundant, and for lack of a better word, elegant paramilitary networks and proxy war networks well established throughout the Balkans. When I left, based on what I was looking at, unless something's changed in the last year, if the Russians wanted to, they could more or less throw a switch and just set the Balkans on fire. Especially any regions that are dominated by Slavs, with the exception of the Macedonians. The Macedonians kind of want to more be a part of NATO. But the Serbs, you know, Slavic Bosnians, uh, the ethnic Serbs in places like Bosnia and Croatia, they like the Russians. They could do a lot of damage there. Now you think, well, why would the Russians do that? Well, real simple. It's a fixing action. They stir up trouble, forced the US NATO to commit troops in the Balkans. And then in the event we go to war with Russia in Eastern Europe or in Western Ukraine, they got a proxy war they can use to bleed us to death and minimize the number of troops and resources and firepower we had to throw against them. Again, ruthless but basic military strategy. That's something most people don't know. But let me assure you, there are things in the Balkans that can blow up in our faces if we're not careful. Like what? Like the Russians stirring up trouble with their paramilitary networks. You know, what they could do, they could stir up something in a place like uh, North Mitrovica in Kosovo, north of the Austerlitz Bridge, which is where that's, that's the dividing area between the Al- ethnic Albanians in the south of the ethnic Serbs north of the river. Start shooting the U.S. troops in Kosovo. Um I'm not sure how much damage they could do to Camp Bonstill because Camp Bonstill is in an Albanian area, and the Serbs would have a tough time getting through there without getting shot to pieces. But areas that are dominated by ethnic Serbs, and there are Russian intelligence officers all over that place. I used to have stacks this thick and files this thick on almost all of them. And it, it was quite clear what they were trying to do and what they were planning for. Um. Now, how would we contain something like that? It would involve deploying U.S. and NATO troops to contain it and try and tamp it down. And it's just a question of how much damage the Russians could do, not whether or not they could do damage. They most certainly can. Yeah.
0: OK. When you were over there in the Balkans region, did you just try to physically just fit in? Uh, did you grow a beard? I mean, what was your
1: what was your look like? Oh, like I am now. When I was at Camp Bondsteel, it was pretty simple. You know, we were in the large part of Kosovo that is dominated by ethnic Albanians. They are staunchly pro-American. Like, they'll celebrate Fourth of July with us on Bondsteel kind of stuff, (laughs) right? I never, I mean, honestly, I was safer in, uh, you know, cities like Pristina and Jelan than I would be in any major U.S. city. They would not want anything happening to an American, especially one who works at Bonstell. They know we're holding back the surge of the Russians. The Albanians have no illusions about that. Okay. Whatever. I had a regular cab driver <clears throat> I used to call all the time, go all over Kosovo and Macedonia with the guy. I, I was never worried for my physical safety one bit. If I ever got stranded somewhere, I'd wave down a guy, even if he didn't speak English, I'd say, hey, American bond steal. He's like, get in.
0: <laughs> cool. Okay. It yeah, was never a concern. Why don't we move to Afghanistan? Do you want to do that? Or is there anything left open that we need
1: to? Oh, we talk about okay. Afghanistan. By all okay.
0: Let's let's do Afghanistan because that's one. And, I, and I've had a guest or two on. We've talked about it, you know, in the past. But, you know, that that one still was bothersome to many of us. Uh, but, you know, you were there. You were in Afghanistan when? 11? 2011?
1: I was there as a soldier in 2011 and from 2012 through the end of 2015 as an intelligence contractor. Okay.
0: Well, would you just give us your input, your perspective then on the withdrawal, the disastrous withdrawal, and then, you know, what's the future of Afghanistan and are we going to be back?
1: So based on everything I saw going on, I worked at the tactical, operational, and then I worked at the strategic clandestine level. So I saw it at multiple layers. And everything I saw when I sat and thought about it, I thought about all the things I learned as a military historian, mostly studying the most successful empire, which is really the Greeks, the Macedonians, the Romans, and the British in the 19th century. Study those empires, you pretty much learn everything you need to know. Yeah. So here's how I look at it. So one of the primary core problems we fail, not the only one, but one of them, we never really had, except for when we first got there trying to get bin Laden, we never had a clear objective, okay? So here's a here's a bit of a comparison I can make. So when I, when I was there, I noticed conventional forces between the Army and Marine Corps, special ops, tier one, CIA, DIA, State Department, they were all pursuing different objectives in Afghanistan. In many cases, the objectives they were pursuing were diametrically opposed to one another. Special ops is trying to kill bad guys. Conventional forces are trying to kill people and win hearts and minds and do social work all at the same time. Okay? And so what's what's a good comparison? So imagine you've got uh, a SWAT hostage rescue team into a two-story building. There's a bunch of hostages in there, and there's some bad guys. You've got the best snipers, the best hostage negotiator, a pretty smart guy running the mission, and you've got the best shooters, best door kickers, best medic, best breachers you can imagine. Normally, when those guys execute a mission, they have a clear objective. Rescue the hostages, shoot the bad guys, get the hell out. Very simple. Now, imagine in that scenario... Those guys were never given clear orders or a clear objective. Imagine the negotiator, the mission commander, the sniper, the door kickers, the breacher, the shooters, and the medic are all pursuing different objectives. Mm-hmm. They go in, it's going to be messy, a lot of excess damage. Gower's long gun battles, they can't figure out what are we doing here. Eventually they kill enough of the bad guys, they're like, well, should we get out or should we try to rebuild the place? Just imagine what a disaster that would turn into. So what is the core problem in those two scenarios? No clear object. So when I was working at different levels, I'd, I, I would talk to flag officers and say, hey, what is our end state here? Okay, I've got the top secret SCI security clearance. So, sir, you should be able to tell me what are we trying to accomplish? And when I asked them that, I would sometimes get a blank stare, like they didn't know. Other cases, they say, well, we're here to blow stuff up because it makes people feel safe. And I'm like, well, just blowing stuff up and just occasionally shooting a guy is not an objective. That is something you do to accomplish an objective. What is our end state? Now, they might say, well, a free and democratic Afghanistan, which has never existed, or they say, well, it's, I love this one, women's rights. And I'm just going, guys, you're not going to undo eight, 10,000 years, whatever history with social work and doing it the barrel of a gun. I mean, what are you smoking? And I would, I would say things like that and sometimes get some dirty looks. And then privately people would tell me, Hey man, you're asking the right questions. We can't get an answer either. And so that was one of the primary core problems: no clear objective. And we tried to do social work in that place. And the first people to try the whole hearts and minds coin approach were the Persians under Cyrus the Great. It didn't work out good for them; they ended up pulling out too. And so there's that. And then there's the socio-cultural system of the country, which is not something we can fix, right? So. In their country, because of the way they've evolved in their geography and their history, the family and the tribe always comes first. That's ingrained in their way of thinking. So any Afghan who makes it into a position of government power, whether it's elected, bureaucratic, whatever, nine times out of ten, their mission is to just take care of their family and their tribe at the expense of all it's just kind of what most of them do, right? <clears throat> Tribal mentality. What that does is it creates corruption on such a deep endemic level that anyone who thinks they can fight corruption in that country is either, one, really stupid, or two, they're just delusion. And the, those that core problem combined with not having a clear objective, that a clear objective, you go to a place and you try to figure out why you're there, you meander around; it just goes on forever. You try to figure out, well, what can we do? Can we kill some people here? Let's build a school here. And when I got to the when I got up to the strategic level where I had access to higher level people, including policymakers from Washington D.C., and I'd say, "Look, man, I want to support the mission, but I got to know what the mission yeah. is. And if you can't, if you're if you guys Washington don't know what it is." One, you either figure it the hell out and stick to it, or two, just pull out and leave because what's the point, right? And so I do think the Biden administration's decision to leave, I do think that leaving was the right decision because really we're just wasting lives and money. How many thousands of lives have we already wasted? What's the point of wasting a thousand more when accomplishing nothing? The way the pullout was handled, the incompetence, I think, crossed the line into criminality. Um, I, I can tell you as a military historian, the Romans and the Greeks would not have made these mistakes. Or if they had, they would have corrected course a lot quicker. Yeah, And their pullout would have been much more well done. And we, when I worked in Afghanistan in 2014... My intelligence platform was part of the original withdrawal plans we had drawn up when we thought Karzai wasn't going to sign the bilateral security agreement. The original withdrawal plan was very well done. It was very well organized. We were going to fall back by unit, by platform to Bagram Airfield and Kandahar, reverse bounding. One unit's going to pull, going to cover, and we're going to cover, and they're going to pull back. It was very well thought out, even though it was a little crowded. The basic plan made a lot of sense. Bagram was the fallback point. Huge airport, hundreds of square miles of standoff distance. Nobody can really get close to that base without getting smoked by a drone because it was vast, mostly rolling hills and flat land. And then somehow we give up Bagram and we use Kabul as the fallback point, which that little airport is surrounded by tall buildings and elevated positions. We call that a fire sack ambush. That is tactically the stupidest thing you can possibly do. And yet we did it. The lowest ranking infantry private in the Marine Corps of the Army after going through infantry school would not have made that mistake. And yet, flag officers and decision makers, well, they made it loud and clear. And I just look at that, and I'm just going, "Gee, money, Christmas, man, we cannot afford to be this stupid in the future." So that's what I think about
0: it. Yeah, look, this is just from a like a, a very far distance away. But did we leave too quick? I know we left Americans there. Did we just pull out and then just didn't think about really how to do it? I mean, what
1: what about more in depth there, Matt? Sure. So you're definitely right in terms of how we pulled out. It was faster and very stupid and sloppy in terms of how we did it the thing of it is back in 2014 when we were thinking about pulling out on mass the first time we thought it out very well I saw some of the planning and it was actually well done those plans were drawn up and then we worked John Kerry came in and we worked out a deal between uh, Ashraf Ghani and Abdullah Abdullah one would be the president one would be the CEO of the country can't make this stuff up. It was it, it was designed to prevent a civil war. And it did it did accomplish that. But you know, the people who came up with those plans, the active duty officers and the contractors and government people, you know, seven years later, six years later, whatever, they're not there anymore because we've drawn down. Yeah. So all that in memory of what the plans were and where those plans were stashed and whatever safe, those people are gone. So all that memory and knowledge is gone. And I'm sure that probably played a role in how sloppy it got. Um, In terms of how we did the pullout, this was not very well thought out. And they were pulling out so fast, leaving Americans behind. And to be fair, some of that is on the contract companies because the contract companies, they don't get paid by the government unless they have a, a person's ass in the seat or in the slot. So, Instead of doing the right thing like some companies did, the one I used to work for was going you know, did it right. Some companies told their US contractors, hey, stay there. And they wanted them to wait to the last possible minute so they could make a little more cash on the way out. Some of those people got left behind.
0: Okay. So two more topics I'd like to cover then. Sure. Before we get to your books, interrogation. You know, what can you say about it? You've you've done it. I um, mean I'm also curious, does it do the tactics differ from the country the person is from or their background
1: kind of thing? In certain cases, it can. So there's certain good basic principles you do learn at the interrogation course that you know do serve you well. It's a good basic grounding. But you do have to study the history, the language, the religion, and the culture to understand how best to apply what you've learned, right? So, for example, um, in Iraq, we would have we had two main insurgent groups in Diyala province. Jay mahdi they were Shiites, Ansar al-Sunnah, they were Sunnis. They both fought us, but they both hated each other's guts. But we could sometimes get creative and play them off against each other. You know, if you're, say, a Sunni leader, I say, hey, man, you know what? You don't want to rat out your boys. Hey, brother, it's cool. Respect that. But what can you tell me about these damn Iranian-backed Shiites over here? You know, they're real assholes, aren't they? Ah, yes, mister. I nor like them. Here's where they keep all their stuff. You know, here's where Abdullah is. You know, he's going to be there tomorrow having lamb kebabs with his aunt or something like that. You know, we we... We weren't allowed to do, you know, waterboarding or torture, but that doesn't mean we didn't use our heads and get creative. Now, something else I learned, and this this generally is something that is found across cultures, but especially in cultures as you get further east. So there's a there's an innate respect for aged, older people, particularly older men, in that culture, and. If you're a young guy like me, interrogate an old guy. If you treat him with a certain amount of deference and respect and you come to him, not like you're trying to interrogate him or push his buttons or, you know, come at him hard, hear up harsh, we used to call it. But if you say, hey, there's a lot of things I don't understand about the places you live in. Mr. So-and-so, why don't you teach me? And older men kind of have a, a deep psychological tendency to want to impart wisdom to a young man who approaches them with a certain amount of humility. Sometimes that did pay dividends and did work. And so you may talk to a guy and say, all right, tell me how you get to work. It's like, well, you know, I ride my goat or my truck, whatever, my Kia Bong or my Toyota Hilux. And I always go down this road. I say, well, you go down that road. I mean, I'm just curious. oh, because the other road has all these rocks stacked one on top of the other. And I'm like, why does that scare you? And he says, oh, that's how we mark where IEDs are planted. And then we go to the commander, we report to him and say, hey, sir, here's what your infantry guys can look for to spot IEDs. There was no real interrogation or approach strategy done for the most part. But by eliciting a little information, we've now got something that can save some lives. And you can still get good information doing that, saying, hey, you know, you know, Mohammed, man, why, why do you guys hate this group of insurgents over here? You, I don't understand, man. Yo, I'm a young guy. I'm a stupid American. Teach me. I want to learn. And the things he tells me may not seem like intelligence on the surface, but It may give me something that allows me to go to an infantry unit and say, hey, this is why these guys are the way they are. And if you want to hit them where it hurts, this is probably where you need to hit them. So it's not an exact science. It's an art form. Yeah.
0: Do you actually take notes or is it all just recorded and other people are watching it and you go back and watch it and that's when you take the notes?
1: So the ones that I did were all recorded. But we still go in there with, you know, maybe a a notepad and a few pieces of paper and a pen. Or if you, you you can sometimes run an approach strategy and get a guy to, we call it break. You know, some guys would some guys would get scared and just be like, oh, Mr. I'm so scared. You'd be surprised. Um, you can you can never you could never really predict what they were going to do. I found that out the hard way. If you get him to quote unquote break and give you information, you start taking those, you ask follow up questions, and then you go and you bang out what we call an intelligence information report. It gets proofread by the S2X and the reports officer, whoever that sergeant or staff sergeant is, or whoever specialist is working for him. And then it gets published out where the entire intelligence community can query it and read it, right? And it's almost like a classified version of a news report. It's a little more rigid, a little more well-organized. That's what we would do. Everyone in the intel community can read that report. Other units can read and get good information off of it. Back. All
0: right. So when you were giving your introduction, it's very, very interesting. And I'm thinking, I mean, I already know you have books, but I still think that every many people will go, man, he could write some really interesting books. So please tell me that your fiction books are really a lot, They there's a lot of truth to them based on your experience.
1: There is. So I'll start with the first one I wrote. So first one is about a 508 page novel called In the Death of Night 2.0. Uh, okay, okay. What that, yeah, what that one's about, It's about a retired CIA paramilitary officer named Bill Carpenter who runs a private security firm in Houston called Mercury Security, okay? And he's old school CIA. He's a Vietnam vet, Air America, Laos, you know, advisor to the Mujahideen in Afghanistan in the 80s, all that good stuff. And so he's got this firm, Mercury Securities, and they have a contract to do what we call technical surveillance countermeasures work for the Houston police, FBI, court system, ATF, ICE, all those agencies, right? Looking for keystroke monitors, listing devices, all that. Well, he has his technicians actually hide and plant the very devices they're supposed to be finding. So he knows everything every federal and local law enforcement agency is doing. So what does he do with that knowledge? He sits down with A former KGB case officer named Mikhail Vladimirov, who's the deputy head of a major Russian organized crime group, a Russian mafia group, has moved into Houston. And the Russians have had a lot of their, you know, laundering rackets and brothels targeted by the police and the FBI and had a lot of them shut down. So Bill Carpenter says to Vladimirov, look. I can tell you if, when, how, why, and where the cops and the feds are going to move on you way in advance and help you smoke out the informants they have in your crime group. I have all this surveillance data on known or suspected Islamic terrorists and spies from Syria, Iran, Saudi Arabia who are living in Houston and are here to target our oil and gas refining infrastructure on the Gulf Coast. And he says, I need you to have your ex-Beznaz, ex-GRU, ex-Russian military, ex-KGB killers and assassins, kill them all and butcher them like hogs. I want it nasty and violent. Don't even try to hide what you're doing. By the way, what's GRU? Russian military. Okay. Uh, Yeah. The Russian abbreviation is hard to pronounce, but it means intelligence director of the Russian general staff. So he says, Mikhail, there's some American citizens I'm going to want killed. I need the desk to look accidental. So I'm going to give you the money, wash it through your laundering rackets, and then you hire, say, ex-South African mercenaries whose files aren't available to the U.S. because those Dutchmen in Pretoria never really liked us that much and don't share that information with us. To hire guys who can make the desk look like heart attacks, car wrecks, poisonings, whatever. And whatever it costs you to kill the first group of guys that I want you to kill I'll spot you for in cold, hard cash. You won't lose a dime. So what do you say? And he says, now, Mikhail, if you refuse this offer and the cops and the feds hit you hard again, your boss in Moscow, Viktor Shcherbyshenko, isn't going to send you a pink slip. It'll be a hard message in a lead envelope that's going to leave you pushing updates. So what do you say? Mikhail Vladimirov says, The the Talvalich, meaning yes, comrade, I'll square it with my boss, Constantine. Let's go ahead and do this. That's when all the action and the violence starts. And then I have a short story collection I wrote called The Jackals of Babylon. It's got a really erotic cover. It's uh, aesthetically pleasing, to say the least. But it's short stories about mercenaries and assassins doing different things. One is a short story called The Executives. It's about investors who hire mercenaries to kill off what are essentially the old Enron executives in Houston that collapse their company and, you know, absconded with all the money or tried to. Mm-hmm. Uh, three of the stories are narrated by a former Marine turned hit man named Scott Raines, who narrates the fourth book I'm still waiting on my cover design for called Mercenary Twilight. And then I've got a, I've got a military sci fi novella out that I had to get cleared by the Pentagon and some other people. It's called The Time Killers. And that's a time travel thriller. So what it's about, it's about it takes place in the year 2027. It's in the aftermath of a war between the U.S. and China that happens in 2025. The aftermath goes bad. There's a zombie virus release, nuclear weapons detonate on U.S. soil. And U.S. counterintelligence figures out that the four people who are responsible for that, two Chinese and two American turncoats. And the only time they were all together in one place was in Houston, Texas, in the late 80s, early 90s. And so what happens is a group of soldiers and scientists working on some deep black programs at Kirtland Air Force Base have figured out with the help of an alien they pulled from a, a UFO crash site along with his actual spacecraft, they figured out how to go back in time. So without telling anyone, they send operational support specialists back in time, the first in late 1987, to set up front companies to be covered for action. And then they send five soldiers back to 1990 to meet up with them outside of Houston to kill these four individuals and change the course of history, stop the war's aftermath from happening. And it's, it's kind of like Stranger Things for adults. It's that late 80s, early 90s culture as seen through the eyes of Gen Xers, who, like me, were younger Gen Xers, but cut their teeth in the war on terror and go on the time of their childhood to change the course of history. And there's there's some really intense graphic sex scenes a lot of guys like, but those scenes are integral to the epilogue of the book that sets it up for the sequel that I'm writing right now. Um, centered around a call girl named Christina Blackwood. When you get to the epilogue of the Time Killers, something happens between 1990 and September 9th, 2001 that makes her behave a certain way. And it's got a... The ending is kind of sad and heartbreaking, but when you read it, don't worry, it's not over. What does your family think about the sex
0: scenes? Have they read any of it?
1: Well... I had a couple female relatives that have read them that I was close to growing up. And they're like, Whoa, it's <laughs> like, Holy cow. It's, it's the kind of scenes guys like us and guy, you know, guys in my target audience, guys like you and me would read and be like, wow, I'm so glad there's none of this fluffy duffy romance. It's Christina Blackwood is having a relationship with one of the soldiers and Sergeant first class Mike Rains. And She doesn't want to be a call girl anymore. She wants to grab herself a man. She definitely knows what she's doing. But if you grew up in Houston in the late '80s, early early '90s, um, there's a lot of stuff from back in those days that's featured prominently. The clothing styles, the uh, raunchy aerobic scene they have, where Rain's first sees her and just about loses his mind while he's supposed to be doing surveillance on a Chinese spy. you know, arcade games feature prominently at the old Aladdin's Castle arcades are there. So it's it's a, it's, only a yeah. it's a relatively short novel. There's a lot.
0: But you grew up in Houston, so that's why you use Houston. Is that right? Okay.
1: Yep. Yeah. I, I grew up, I'm, I'm 43, so I, I remember the old arcade games. I remember what it was like growing up as a kid. I remember all that stuff vividly and what was different back then yeah and so that that certainly made it easier to write a book that uh again if, you, if you're a fan of stranger things i think you enjoy the book
0: okay good and you definitely remember the houston oilers and war moon <laughs>
1: yeah I, re- I remember the oilers
0: very interesting anything you want to say in closing because by the way i'll have a link to your books in your amazon page for sure anything else though
1: well, one last thing for your viewers, and I know that uh, the people who you know watch this podcast are probably the types of people who are into these kind of things and probably are concerned about the direction the country's going. For any of those people who want to know how to fix some of our issues and who might go into politics or policymaking, they absolutely have to study the Roman Empire because up until the late 3rd century A.D., when the Roman legions started to disintegrate because they, they couldn't get enough citizens to serve in the legions, that was the primary core problem that actually brought the Roman empire down was that. But up until that point, study the Roman empire because every single answer we need on what to do and what not to do, they are all there. Great,
0: and I'll probably link your interview with Andy Stumpf on uh clear hot podcast, I believe, because you do go into some detail on the Roman empire M- empire for sure. Hey man, thanks, Matt. It's been a pleasure. Appreciate you being on Sir. Patriot to the core.
1: Sorry. Thank you so much for having me on. It was my pleasure.